Amen. Amen. I'm talking to you about Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Last week we shared some pointed truths about this great revelation concerning the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And I want to continue that tonight with the second part of this study on Jesus, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. The book of Hebrews is a fascinating book. It is readily understood when you know the economy of the Old Testament. When you understand the system of sacrifices, the Old Testament, tent, tabernacle, and the temple built on the same pattern as the um, as the uh, portable tabernacle what the Israelites used when they moved about and, and uh, carried with them, set it up everywhere they camped and had their place of worship there. And when you, when you have a concept of the Old Testament, so I spent last week talking a good bit about things in the Old Testament. I want to tonight dwell particularly on the book of Hebrews because when you have the background, of understanding of the things in the Old Testament, you can readily understand the book of Hebrews. It is an explanation of the superiority of Jesus Christ and all things that relate to Jesus, the superiority over the Old Testament. So the major theme in Hebrews is Jesus is superior to the Old Testament revelation that came through the prophets. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, make that very clear. And it goes on to express that Jesus is greater than, greater than angels, greater than Moses, greater than Aaron and the line of the Levitical priests. And then on in the further chapters, a great development of faith, because to accept the New Testament and the New Covenant, the revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ was a great step of faith for these Hebrew people who had become Christians, followers of Jesus. So let me go into the book of Hebrews with you, and I invite you to open your Bible there, and that's most of the places I'm going to talk about tonight are in the book of Hebrews. I'm going to conclude this message by reading an extensive part of the book of Hebrews because I learned... I knew it, but I learned it again as I was studying for this presentation tonight that the book explains itself as well as anybody can explain it by talking about it. So I'm going to read it and slightly comment on it as I come to the end of this message. Now, Father, we pray your Holy Spirit will reveal truth to us, shine a light of revelation in our hearts, not for new truth, but clarification of the truth that you have already presented to us in the person and the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus, our Savior. Holy Spirit, lead us tonight. Guide us into the depth of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Hebrews is a book of superiorities, and it is always Jesus and what he has brought in 
his ministry to us and to the world is superior to all that preceded him. Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus is superior to all the revelation of the Old Testament. Though it was a divine revelation and it was given by the prophets, the revelation manifested in the Lord Jesus superseded all of that. And the persuasive messages presented to the Hebrew Christians of this day that Jesus is greater than all of the past. He's greater than the angels that God created. You find that in the first chapter, the fourth verse, and on, on through the middle part of the second chapter of Hebrews. And then in chapters 3 and 4, the writer describes how and this was a challenge to Hebrew believers. But he presented how Jesus is greater than Moses and superior to all that Moses did. And then in the next part, chapters mostly 5 through 10, it deals with this, that Jesus and his ministry of priesthood is better than, greater than, superior to, the Old Testament priesthood that was in the line of Aaron, who was the brother of Moses, and then from the tribe of Levi, which from which came the name the Levitical priesthood. And then in the, in the great chapter 11 of Hebrews, there's a hall of fame of the victorious Hebrew, the victorious heroes of faith, who declared their faith by their deeds and their actions and their lives, and presented the victory of God through their faith. Now, faith, that chapter starts out, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. By the elders obtained a good report. That's the definition, the classic definition of faith that we've used through all of these years. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And then it tells about those great men of, and women of God who walked in faith and believed God when they had nothing but faith to hold on to and lived victorious lives. The latter part of chapters 12 and 13 talk to us about how serious our call is to follow the Lord and how practical it is when we take the advice of the Scriptures to live for Him. So let me go now into the last part of chapter 6. And I'm going to start reading at verse 19. And you're welcome to follow with me. Chapter 6 of Hebrews, verse 19. We have this. Now, when he says this, he's talking about what has already been described in the first part of that chapter. He speaks there of two immutable things, the counsel of God and the oath that God made with Abram. Or Ab and let's, I'm going to call him Abraham, although he was Abraham. He was Abram, and then he became Abraham. I'm just going to call him Abraham so I don't get my own thoughts mixed up about it. So when God spoke to Abram, Abraham and uh, made promises to him and de declaration of impossible things, God said to, to, uh, to Abraham and to his wife Sarah. And yet God confirmed that and he swore to it by, him, by, by himself. And, and, and that's the testimony that God is not a man that he should lie, that God would tell the truth, and that God is uh, 
that his veracity is unquestioned in all things because he has honored his word by the name, the honor of his name. So everything that God is resides on his veracity. So God's truth is necessary. So he confirmed his promise to Abraham by an oath. And so by these two immutable things, things immutable things that cannot change, that cannot be changed, his counsel and his oath. So because of this, verse 19, we have this, these immutable things, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, because we can believe God and what he has said. A hope, it gives us a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now remember I talked to you last week about the tabernacle and the temple pattern that followed the tabernacle, how they had an outer court and then an inner place, a holy place of worship. And then there was the most holy place or the holy of holies, which the high priest could only go in and he could only go in one time a year. So now when this makes a reference to saying Jesus has gone into, has entered into the inner place behind the curtain. It says that he has gone into the Holy of Holies, but not the Holy of Holies of earth, the Holy of Holies of heaven, which is the very throne of God, where God resides, where the presence of God, the eternal God, the majestic God of glory, who has honored his son Jesus Christ for his obedience and his service and his sacrifice. Now, Jesus has entered in to that holy place, the very presence of Father God. And he has gone there, I'm still reading now, he has gone there as a forerunner on our behalf. He went there so we could go there. He came into the presence of Father God so we could come into his presence. He gave us access. Jesus has gone there as a forerunner on our behalf. He did this for us having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And there's that majestic name again, that mysterious name again, Melchizedek, the high priest of Salem, the priest of righteousness appointed by God. Now, this man Melchizedek is described as a man has no, he has no genealogies, no beginning and no end. And what it means is he has no genealogy. He is just a man that God chose, selected, and sent out to meet Abraham, Abram, Abraham, at the time of his victorious return from conquering the kings who had risen against him and who had captured his nephew Lot and his family, and he set them free. And God gave Abram and his companions, his helpers, his colleagues, gave them a great victory. And Abraham's on his return home, and on his return home, he stops and pauses at a, at a place where he chooses to rest at the end of the day. And there comes there a man, unexpected, uninvited, who just walks in, and his name is Melchizedek, there's no record about it. There's no retinue coming with him, no surrounding people who are saying, oh, get ready for Melchizedek. Here he comes, and here are his credentials, and this is who he is. There's nothing like that. Melchizedek just walks into the camp, and there he is. And when Abraham sees him, there is a witness of the Spirit of God. This is important now to the Hebrews that this book is written to. It's extremely important to them. 
There's a witness from God to Abraham. If anybody could say anything that was right, it would be unchallenged to the Hebrews. It was Abraham. And then next, Moses. These were icons of believability to all of the Hebrews. So when Melchizedek comes and Abraham recognizes him as a priest of God. Abraham says, this man is God's servant. This man is God's priest. And I recognize him. And how did he testify to that recognition? He gave him a tenth of all he possessed. Now that has to be a revelation of God. And the Hebrews see it that way. That's why Melchizedek was kind of a hero of their history as a part of Abraham's history. So now, Abraham has acknowledged that Melchizedek is a priest of God, a high priest of God. He's a solo priest. He doesn't have a bunch of priests around him with a lot of things going on he, uh, and a lot of sacrifices being offered, a lot of ceremonial things being done. He just comes in and in the presence of Abraham, he pronounces a blessing on him. Gives a benediction over Abraham. And Abraham is witness, has the witness of the Holy Spirit in his heart. God speaks to him and tells him, this man is my priest. And Abraham acknowledges that and gives him a tenth of all he possesses. I'll digress a moment to tell you. When anybody talks to you about the tithe being Old Testament and under the law, it started 400 years before the law ever existed. Abraham started it. Now, why did he choose a tenth? There's only one reason and only one way Abraham would have chosen to give a tenth. There was no custom. There was no law. There was no church pastor standing up and saying, you ought to pay a tenth of your, t- tenth of your income and give tithes. There's nobody telling Abraham that except one person told Abraham that. Melchizedek didn't even say, I want you to give me a tenth of all you possess. He might not have happened if he had done that. Now, Melchizedek just let the Lord speak, and Abraham heard God. And who could have told Abraham about a tenth? Why didn't he give instead of 10%. Why did he give 20%? Why did he give 10%? Because God spoke to him about this man Melchizedek. And he said, he is my high priest. And it's my order. It's my plan. It's my system. I want you to give a tenth of what you have to Melchizedek. And Abraham, ever the obedient servant, ever the surrendered, subservient child of God, walking all the way out of his homeland to a land he didn't know when God told him to move, going out to defeat these kings that he had just re- is returning from, believing God for the son and the heir that it was impossible physically to receive, to have. And yet here he is hearing from God again, and God speaks to him about a tenth. That is a message from God that this is God's plan and God's order. So now, uh, but here Abraham and Melchizedek are here together. And, and, uh, and Abraham, Abraham recognizing the validity of the priesthood of Melchizedek sends a message down through the centuries for the time when Jesus of Nazareth would come on the scene and would be declared the anointed of God, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And then that gives a chance for the New Testament revelation to present to all of the Jewish, all of the Hebrew, all of the Israelite Christians who had come to the Lord, that you have a different high priest. Melchizedek, who visited Abraham, who was recognized by Abraham as a high priest of God, who confirmed that recognition by giving him a tithe of all that he possessed. Now, 
we see the reason for it, is what the writers of Hebrews are saying. The reason for it is because he was a type of Jesus Christ who came as the son king, who came as the son priest, who came as the son prophet, and here he is revealed in a scriptural manifestation to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, for those people to understand that they had to take a leap of faith, they had to believe that Melchizedek was the prototype of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the reason that all the explanation is put here in Hebrews, because it is so important. Jesus would not have qualified to be a priest of Israel. To be a priest in Israel, you had to be born in the tribe of Levi. You had to have a genealogical record of your family to know when you, all your ancestors, and you were qualified by birth to be a priest because you were in the tribe of Levi. Jesus was not born in the tribe of Levi. Jesus was born in the tribe of Judah. And that's what the, the writer of Hebrews says that. So it's explained thoroughly that, that, that and then very clearly said that Jesus was not a priest of Israel. But he was a priest of God. Father God chose him and appointed him and anointed him and declared he is the priest. He is the high priest, the high priest of heaven, because he is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, who was also not in the Levitical, in the Levitical tribe. There wasn't one at that time. He didn't have any kind of credentials. That's why the Bible says that he, he had no beginning and no end. He didn't have a genealogy to say he was recognized as a priest. He didn't have any, there was no record of his death, not that he didn't die, it's just not recorded. And so therefore he is in the living memory, he is a priest forever. And in that way he's a prototype of the Lord Jesus who came and who became God's high priest for us, for our, on our behalf. And so now, because of this, we come directly to God as long as we come to him through Jesus our Lord, through Jesus who is our true priest. And he's the only true priest that we have. I want to stress that to you. He's the only true priest that we have. And, 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 and another thing as we go forward here, we're going to see some things that I think are revel they're revelatory to me. This is a message that the New Testament is God's new order. The Old Testament has passed away for its efficacy and its use and its validity for salvation. There is no longer the, no longer the requirement to keep the law because we have been set free from the law and from the bondage of sin and death and made free and whole in Jesus Christ. Now, Throughout the early years of the Christian church, that this conflict existed. There were those who grew up as Jews, men who had been circumcised, women who had kept the law and been faithful to the law as well as they could be. And they thought that anybody who came to Christ because this is the message of salvation that came through the Jews, Anybody who came to Christ should follow the customs and the law which required the circumcision of the males 
And that was a contention that new people, Gentiles being saved, should be circumcised. Of course, that's what Paul stood up and contested vigorously against until the leaders of the new church agreed with him. He was then the apostle to the Gentiles, and there was no requirement of circumcision, no requirement of anything about the law, nothing about the keeping of the law. And so in today's society where we are in the Christian church, people who want to revert back to the celebration of the Old Testament feasts for spiritual value are misdirected. People who want to put on prayer shawls because it will make their prayer be more effective before the Lord are misguided. People who want to obey the Sabbath and worship on the Sabbath because that's the day God chose and The Sabbath is the day that's the only right day to worship are misinformed, and they will misguide and mislead and misinform you and anybody else that they can because they're rooted in that dogmatism of Old Testament faith that has been abrogated, fulfilled, completed, and replaced by the covenant of Jesus Christ in the new order that happened at the time of his death and at the time of his resurrection. Now, you can hear all the discussions and arguments about it that you want to hear when it all comes down to it. Go back to what Paul said about it. Don't worry about what the people who believe it, who are the Sabbatarians, who say you've got to be, you got to worship on the Sabbath. Or they say, well, you know, and a lot of, a lot of times you hear, well, I don't, it's not necessarily because the law said it, but it was a good thing. You know, to eat pork is really not good for you. So, But they think that not eating pork makes you more spiritual, too. I had two good servings of bacon today. Uh, it's true. I usually fast on Wednesday, but recently I started deciding that every now and then uh, I just wouldn't fast on Wednesday because I don't want it just to be a routine. Just because it's Wednesday, I'm fasting, and then it just becomes a routine. So every now and then I'll eat on Wednesday, and, and, and I did today. And, it, and it's true. I had a wonderful breakfast about 12 o'clock and two servings of bacon. So, so, and, and you know, I'm, if somebody doesn't want to eat pork, that's all right with me. I don't care. I don't care if you don't want to eat steak. I don't care if you want to be a vegan. That's up to you. But don't do it because you think it's going to make you a more spiritual person, because it's going to draw you closer to God, because you're doing what the Bible says. No, 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 no. Because that's the Old Testament, and we don't live in the Old Testament. We live under the economy of the Old Testament. We're living in the New Testament, and not by law, but by grace. And nothing can be clearer and plainer in the New Testament than that. This replaces the Old Testament. That's why the book of Hebrews teaches that the covenant of Jesus Christ, the Old Covenant the Old Testament, the New Covenant the New Testament. That's why he says the covenant of Jesus Christ is better than the Old Covenant. Everything about Jesus and his revelation, his priesthood, all about Jesus is superior to everything in the Old Testament because he has replaced and superseded all that, fulfilled, all of that fulfilled and finished. So the prophecies about Jesus have been fulfilled, and he has come as our Savior, as our King, as our prophet, and as our high priest. So now, the order of Melchizedek. Let's talk about it uh, further. Hebrews chapter 6, I just read that, verses uh, 19 and 20. I'll just emphasize this again. Our forerunner, Jesus, 
entered on our behalf into that holy place in the presence of Father God. And he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is so important primarily because he points us to Jesus. He lifts up Jesus as being our high priest, and we see him in that order. And, and it's amazing how God planned all of these things centuries ahead. The Levitical priesthood came along, and for hundreds of years, the Israelites followed that pattern, and it was revealed, it was there by God. But it was put there, all of that as symbolism, all of that to present to them that uh, the, all, the, all the blood of the bulls and goats and lambs that were slain on the altars. Every time blood was shed, it was speaking about Calvary, where Jesus, the Lamb of God, would shed his blood for the sins of the world. So one poet wrote, not all the blood of bulls and goats could take away one stain, one thing that marred our lives. All of those sacrifices did us no good. But the practice of following the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us and made us whole in him. Let me go on to chapter 7. Now, chapter 7 is about Melchizedek and the priestly order that Jesus fits into. So starting now at the beginning of chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. This is what I've just now told you about. But here it is revealed in chapter 7 of Hebrews. And to him, Abraham, a portion, a tenth part of everything. Is it confirmed in the New Testament? What happened in the Old Testament? Confirmed in the New Testament. He is first, Melchizedek is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. I've already explained that to you, and here's the scripture substantiates what I was telling you. Because the writer goes on, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth. How great was this man, Melchizedek, to whom our father Abraham, the patriarch of our, of our, of our generations, gave a tenth of all of his spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. The priest took tithes because that was God's order. That started with Abraham and Melchizedek. So now if you go on down to the, very, to the, uh, to the bottom part of the chapter on uh, verse 18, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Old Testament, set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, this one we're talking about, Jesus now, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant better covenant than the old covenant. He, Jesus is the guarantor of this covenant. What makes him the guarantor? The sacrifice of his blood, the spilling of the blood of the Lamb of God, the rising from the dead to show that this is a new order. None of the Old Testament sacrifices ever came back from the dead after they'd been killed, but Jesus is a new order. After sacrificing himself on the cross, he came forth from the dead. The 
endure forever. For it was indeed fitting, I'm still reading now, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's Jesus. He has no need. Listen now carefully. He has no need like those high priests, the priests of the Old Testament. He has no need to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. See, that's what the high priest had to do and all the priests had to do. They offered a sacrifice for their own sins because they were imperfect flawed men. And then they had to offer sacrifice for the sins of all the people. Since, and he didn't have to do that. Jesus didn't have to do that. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He offered himself. Not a sacrifice for himself, but himself. He offered. And in that he offered a sacrifice for the sins of the world. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. The law had a Levitical priesthood. There were men who became priests. They became priests by genealogy, by birth. A priest had a son. He became a priest. The high priest was elected. The high priest in Israel was a high, high political position. It wasn't just a spiritual, religious thing. It was a political thing as well. You know, he went to the high priest of Jesus. They went to Pilate. They had influence. They exerted their influence. And uh, the high priest was uh, was uh, known and revered by the whole nation. Even if the, the Jews who might have been, not been in particular religious, they had a high regard for the high priest. Kind of like a lot of people who are not very religious have a high regard for the Pope today. I don't understand that, but that's just the way it is. So so he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifice daily first for psalms and then for sins of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath... God's word that declared Melchizedek a high priest and Jesus a priest in that order, the word of the oath which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. He's appointed the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has made him perfect forever. Forever a high priest, an ever-living high priest. Not one who has to offer a sacrifice for himself and then offer a sacrifice for the people and then come again and constantly do it over and over and over. Once and for all. And we're going to see that here. Jesus made that sacrifice. Chapter 8. Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places. In the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. In the true tent, not the Old Testament tent. Not the Old Testament ta- uh, uh, temple, even. But a place of holy worship that Father God set up. Not that man set up, but this is the eternal, heavenly, holy of holies, where Jesus has appeared on our behalf and offered the sacrifice for our sins on the altar of God so that our sins are covered by him and our faith in him forever. I could go on to read I'm, 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 all of this chapter is about the priesthood. Let me go on down to verse 6. There it says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Better. Jesus is better than the Old Testament. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. Grace is better than law. Everything, 
about the Old Testament has abrogated the need. Everything about the New Testament has abrogated the need for the Old Testament because he has fulfilled it. And the revelation of Jesus is an eternal one, not constantly changing like, like the elements of the law itself, but the elements and the practice of the law. Things constantly being added to and intricacies being developed. Not that. Jesus, once and for all, made that sacrifice. So, so the last verse of this chapter, the last verse of chapter 8, says this. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. I've been saying that over and over and over, and he just makes it so plain and so clear. He's just saying it real simple. And speaking of, he makes, speaking of the new covenant, he makes the old first one, the Old Testament, the old covenant, he makes it obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And it does in the power of the victory of the New Testament message of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the victory that he gives and brings to us. Now, look in chapter 9 of Hebrews. I, I encourage you strongly to read the fullness of these chapters, that you sit down and just read through these chapters and, and exert your memory, memory to call back the things that we've talked about here, as I've told you the meaning of so much of it. And all of it relates to what happened in the Old Testament and how God has a different economy and a different plan that all is revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 22 of chapter 9, he says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified by the blood. There's, you have to have the shedding of the blood in the Old Testament plan. Why? Because it was a symbol. It was a type of Jesus shedding his blood on Calvary. Every time a lamb or a bull or a goat or any anything was slain, that shedding of the blood, that blood spoke of the shedding of blood that would, would, would happen, that would come and would be fulfilled on Calvary when Jesus died and spilled his blood for the sins of the world. All of that was, was being prophesied in the Old Testament by those events. And then he, go, he completes that verse by saying, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Now, this is one of the things that makes it very difficult for the world to comprehend and accept the message of Christ, the message of the New Testament. It is abhorrent to many people to think that blood would have to be shed and that God would exact a blood offering for the sins of the world. And then beyond that, how could one man die for the sins? Well, the world doesn't take into account that God made a plan and God perfected his plan. And God performed his plan. And then his plan has stood the test of the ages so that Jesus Christ, though many people, when they speak of him, don't really know what they're talking about. They still know the name of Jesus Christ. They know that he uh, is is proclaimed by the Christian faith to be the Son of God. And all of this is the economy of God that says, We must be saved. I must needs go home by the way of the cross, the writer said. There's no other way but this. I shall ne'er get sight of the gates of light if the way of the cross I miss. We've got to come by the way of the cross. We've got to come by the shedding of blood. We've got to come through the tomb, brought out of the tomb, and the death with Christ by 
our faith into new life with him as he rose from the dead so that the power of his blood is stated as efficacious throughout all of time and all of the future. The blood will never lose its power. (coughs) So then go on down to verse 26. Again in chapter 9. For then he would have had Let me start just a verse before that. Verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. He He didn't have to sacrifice over and over again like they did in the Old Testament. They had to keep sacrificing all the time. He didn't have to sacrifice over and over because one time he offered one sacrifice once for all, his own shed blood, the Lamb of God. He didn't have to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, blood of an animal. Not his own blood. For then, speaking of Jesus now, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The great New Testament passage that everybody ought to know. He appeared once in the end of the world, at the end of the ages. He appeared once to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. But there it is. Jesus, priest forever, chosen and selected, ordained by God, prophesied by the prototype Melchizedek in the early stages of the Old Testament, in the early days of the Old Testament. And thou in the revelation of God through Christ Jesus, he he has fulfilled the the prophecy and the type and the symbol of Melchizedek. And now, by God, Father appointment, because Father God said, you are my high priest forever. Not because of any other reason, not because of any other inheritance. Jesus is divinely appointed. This is, this is the message to the Hebrews, for them to believe. A great challenge to everything they had known. Great revelation for them to receive. But it's all made very clear to them how Jesus fulfills the word of God and how he is God's church, how he is God's son. He is God's priest, God's high priest, and a high priest forever on our behalf. Now, chapter 10. I'm starting at verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, Make perfect those who draw near. Old Testament sacrifice, it couldn't make people perfect. It couldn't forgive their sins or or bring them to God. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. If they really were cleansed of the sin in the Old Testament, they wouldn't be conscious of the need for that anymore. Different from the New Testament. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. The fact that the sacrifices continued to be made, especially on certain days of the year, was a reminder that their sins were not gone 
they had to keep on offering sacrifices for those sins. Then he says this classic word in verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Not all the blood of bulls and goats on Jewish altars slain could give one guilty sinner peace or take away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away. A sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. That's what it declares. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So when Christ came into the world, he said, it's, I'll, I'll just read it quickly to you. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me, for Jesus. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. As it is written of me in the scroll of the book, Jesus came to honor God, to obey him, and to fulfill God's will and God's plan. That's what he said. Then he goes on to say, When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then Jesus said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Again and again, Paul repeats. I I, I stepped up and said, Paul. I'll say at the end of my message why. The writer of Hebrews said, that, uh, Behold, Jesus said, Behold, I've come to do your will. He has done away with the first to establish the second. Again and again in Hebrews, that's what the writer says. The Spirit of God moving through that writer is saying, The old has passed away, the new is what is real. The old is no longer the reality, the New Testament is the reality. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, by that will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once, once, and that's it. Down to verse 14, for by a single offering, a single offering, not a repeated offering of the Old Testament again and again and again, but by one single offering at the cross of Calvary, the Lamb of God, who had been slain from the foundation of the world, manifested his reason for being in this world, and that was to die for the sins of the world and bring salvation to all mankind, rising from the dead to prove that this was the manifestation of God's plan forever and forever. This is the covenant. For by a, Let me read this one more time. For by a single offering, He, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The finished work of Christ, we have often said. And you don't have to have anything added to that. There is nothing you have to add to the finished work of Christ for your salvation. Nothing you have to do, nothing you have to say, nothing you have to pay, nothing you have to know where you have to go except to the cross by faith. And when you do that, once and for all, by that single offering, that finished work of Christ on Calvary, you are saved in the hands of God, secure in His promise and 
perfection forever. He has fulfilled himself in the child of God that he's brought to salvation through the blood and by grace. Hallelujah. 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 Glory to God. Therefore, brothers, I'm down in verse 19 now. Let's read just this. And I, I, I get fascinated with this. I'm down in, in verse 19. He says, therefore, brothers, therefore, take him into account all, that I said, all I've said up to now, considering all that I've said. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, how about that? We have confidence. Enter, remember the Holy of Holies? Remember the holy place? Remember the Holy of Holies I was talking about? That's what he said. Now we have confidence. We can enter the holy places. How? By the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. Again, the curtain that was split, remember? Through the curtain. That is his flesh. When his flesh was torn. That's what the veil represented. His flesh was torn and the veil was torn. It was the tearing of Jesus' flesh, the opening of his body that caused his blood to pour forth. That opened the door for us to be able to come to God. And since we have a great high priest, a great high priest over the house of God, Jesus our high priest, we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, believing it, holding on to it, never letting go. Let's hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful. Jesus, who's made the promises and fulfilled the promises, he's faithful to keep the promises for us and to enable us to stand in the promises of his victory forever. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting. I'm going to say something here. I'm going to let him say it first. Not neglecting the, to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. I wonder why the writer here in all these glorious, wonderful, powerful, victorious, majestic things he's saying pauses long enough to say we ought not to neglect coming together as his body to worship him. There must be something important about that for him to come after all these things he's talking about. The holy of holies, the holiest place, heaven, where Jesus has gone, taking his blood for our sacrifice. All the wonderful things he said. And then he says, we ought not to neglect the assembling of ourselves together. The King James says, don't not to neglect the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is. So I'm going to tell you, call me a church promoter and just promoting church attendance if you want to. I think it's important to be in the house of God with the body of Christ. I believe. And so that's my message for this evening. Now, when the recording is done, it will stop here.